I encourage you to take your Bibles and open to the book of Jeremiah. We're going to continue this morning our series going through this marvelous book. But I do intend to take us a little farther down the book. We're going to skip. We were, we've been in chapters 1 and 2 over the last couple of weeks. Today we're going to skip over to chapter 35 of the book of Jeremiah. I encourage you to get your a Bible out. If you don't have one, there's one in the pew in front of you. And uh, to turn to Jeremiah chapter 35. I'm going here this morning because it's Father's Day and because I want to to notice here in this particular story, it's all about a father, a father's influence. One of the most remarkable stories, I think, or uh, examples I can think of regarding a father's lasting impact. Jeremiah 35. Follow along as I just read the first verse. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. That verse is important because it does kind of set the stage for us a little bit. Again, the book of Jeremiah is not laid out chronologically. Fortunately, he gives us a little intro to most of his prophecies to help us know when it's happening. And so... For those of you who have been with us over the last couple of weeks, this is now about 22 years later than where we've been. It's now 605 B.C. You might recall that uh, back in chapters 1 and 2, 22 years earlier than this, Jeremiah begins his ministry when King Josiah is on the throne. King Josiah is a good and a godly king. He came to be king after some evil, wicked men, and he began to lead a time of revival and trying to turn the hearts of the people back to the Lord. But now here in 605 B.C., King Josiah is dead. He, passed, he died four years before this. His son Jehoiakim is on the throne, and Jehoiakim is, again, a wicked man. And the nation very quickly under him, reverted back to the way things were before Josiah had come on the throne. So that has changed in the land of Judah. On the world stage, things have changed. Many of Jeremiah's predictions, which seem so bizarre and unlikely 22 years before, are now beginning to take shape. In the past few years, Babylon has emerged from being really not much of anything on the world stage and just about seven years before this began to take on Assyria, the world's number one superpower at the time. And they defeated Assyria, took the capital of Nineveh. They also, Egypt came up and they got into war with Egypt, the world's second superpower at that time. And they just finished dealing Egypt a defeat. And Egypt is on the run, retreating back to Egypt and the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar as well. They've all just come right through Israel, right through Palestine on their way down to Egypt where Nebuchadnezzar is knocking on Egypt's door. That's the setting as this story opens. God says here to Jeremiah, verse 2, Go to the house of the Rechabites and speak to them. And bring them to the house of the Lord into one of the chambers, then offer them wine to drink. And so I took Jeazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, not Jeremiah the prophet, another Jeremiah, the son of 
Habazaniah and his brothers and all his sons and the whole house of the Rechabites. And I brought them to the house of the Lord into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the sons of Igdaliah, the man of God, which was near the chamber of the officials above the chamber of Maaseiah the son of Shalom, the keeper of the threshold. Then I set before the Rechabites pitchers full of wine and cups, and I said to them, drink wine. Some of you just in reading those verses, looking through those, you probably have had nightmares about passages like that, about being in Sunday school when somebody asks you, would you read these verses? And you see all those words, you know, who are these people? What are these? Who has names like this anyway? You know? There's Jazz and, you know, and, and Habaz and, and, you know, we'll give them nicknames. Wow. Well, by the way, if you come to Sunday school, and I hope you will, Sunday school is a wonderful thing, a wonderful time to learn and grow and meet other folks, and, and we won't uh, embarrass you and make you read stuff like that in front of others, okay? As you get through all those names, we wonder what in the world is going on here. All these things we don't know anything about. It sounds so bizarre. Well, let me just help us this morning get the story. God comes to Jeremiah and tells Jeremiah, go find the the Rechabites. Go find these people and I want you to bring them to the temple. Now, Jeremiah, by the way, if you're new with us, Jeremiah is the prophet. The book here, of course, is named after him. He is, at this time, a household name, kind of like Billy Graham would be to us today uh, in our time. Some people of his day respect and honor the prophet. They honor Jeremiah. Others fear him. Many others at this time, they loathe, they ridicule, they disdain him. But everybody knows who he is. And I use the name Billy Graham. I don't think I can't think of another name in our generation. And of course, he's gone home to be with the Lord. But still, in our time, I can't think of another name of a man who loves Jesus Christ and has proclaimed the gospel, whose name is so recognizable among the average pagan out in our culture. Jeremiah, he's that well known in Judah. In contrast, the Rechabites, whom God tells him to go find, the Rechabites are viewed as backwoods people. I think Arkansas hill folk. (laughs) Somebody after the first service said, I am one of those. I'm sorry. He's also about that big. And I said, sorry. (laughs) But even more than that, they are nomads. They live in tents. So they're even more backwoods. And they just happen to be in Jerusalem at this time. We'll find out why as we keep reading. So Jeremiah goes out and he finds them and he brings them into, and it gives us all the the names of these different places, but he brings them to the temple, in the grandeur of Solomon's temple, and he, he takes them through the public areas and ushers them into the back areas. It talks about the chambers of this person, the chambers of that person, into the part of the temple where there are Quarters, the priests and Levites have have quarters, apartments, homes there. And he takes them to one where he's made arrangements ahead. They go into the quarters of this man and into uh, probably a banquet hall, probably a large area that he's made arrangements for. And it's a big deal. Just, Just think, this is like, you know, 
Again, the, we think our Arkansas friends, there's Lester and Lenny and Larry and Daryl and their other brother Daryl, you know, and they've, they've all been taken fresh from the hills of the Ozarks to Washington, D.C. And in Washington, D.C., ushered into either, you know, like the National Cathedral or probably even better example, right into the White House, right into the Blue Room. And there they have, we're going to resurrect him for the moment, a personal audience with Billy Graham, okay? And probably I imagine that there in the room, Jeremiah has brought only not only the Rechabites and, and himself, but he's probably also brought a number of the religious leaders because there's, this is an object lesson. There's a point here that God has. He brings them all together and then in that setting, Jeremiah, the prophet, the man who speaks for God, has brought in and sets before them Pitchers that are full of wine and cups. And he says, Rechabites, drink away. Now, what happens next is shocking. Look at verse 6. But they answered, we will drink no wine. We will drink no wine. If... There are other people in the room, and again, I think I imagine at least the way I picture it, the room is filled with all these dignitaries, these religious leaders. They are there, and they they see this happen, and they just there's a collective gasp as they suck the air out of the room. <gasps> That's rude. If you know, if there were reporters in the room, they're immediately running out trying to. Tell everybody out there what happened. Get it on the four o'clock news. If it were today, you know, Twitter would have erupted already. It'd be going viral immediately. The Rechabites, they're rude people. You bring these, these hillbillies right into the White House and you, you set them before, before the, these dignitaries and before Billy Graham and they, they refuse to be sociable. And drink this wine. Now, I'm not a coffee drinker. Some of you know that. Some people view that as a personal flaw. I happen to think it's a virtue. Okay? But it, I, don't, I don't drink coffee, not because of some, you know, religious, noble reasons. It's just I don't like this stuff. Never have. Okay? And if you take me into your home and you offer me a cup of coffee, I will say, thank you very much, but I'll pass. However, there have been situations, and it may happen in your home one day, where I'm sitting there and you just stick, someone sticks coffee in front of me. Especially if it's someone I don't know or if it's in a place with people that, you know, where it's just the right thing to do, the social thing to do is to drink it. Right? You've been there where etiquette is you eat what mom and dad used to tell you. You eat or you drink what's put before you. You've had those situations? I've had that happen, especially in some other countries. Uh, in Guatemala, it happened a lot. I've had it happen in Japan. I've had it happen in the Philippines. And what, what do I do then? Well, I drink the coffee. It would be rude not to. And when I do silently and I'm drinking that, I'm just going, oh, I hate coffee. I really hate coffee. With a smile on my face. And I say, thank you, God, that I'm not in Niger, where our friend Jim Knowlton tells us that there the Wodabi people 
serve their coffee with rancid butter. And so I just go, thank you, God. This is much better than that. (laughs) Politeness demands that we accept and we partake what is put before us. And so here these Rechabites are offered good wine. And there is no reason in the Scriptures for them not to drink the wine. There's no prohibition against it. And here the the man of God, the prophet who speaks for God, is saying, drink the wine. It is being presented them as a gift of honor by a man of honor in a place of honor. And they say, no. Why in this place and in this setting will they say, no, we won't drink it? Why so rude? And they give a remarkable reason in the next verses. But they answered, verse 6, We will drink no wine, for Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, You shall not drink wine, neither you nor your sons forever. You shall not build a house, you shall not sow seed, you shall not plant or have a vineyard, but you shall live in tents all your days that you may live many days in this land where you sojourn. We have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he commanded us, to drink no wine all our days, ourselves, our wives, our children, our sons, our daughters, not to build houses to dwell in. We have no vineyard or field or seed, but we have lived in tents and have obeyed and done all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. But when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against the land, we said, Come, let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and the army of the Syrians. So we are living in Jerusalem. So why are we not going to drink your wine? They explain, it's because our father, Jonadab, said not to. Daddy said, don't drink the wine. Don't drink any wine. And so they haven't. Now, they say Jonadab was a son of Rechab. They are Rechabites. The Rechabites are not Jews. The Rechabites are sympathetic to the Jews, and the Rechabites live among the Jews, but they are distinct from the Jews. They are not Jews. In fact, They are descendants of Moses' brother-in-law, Hodab. You might recall, we won't go there, but back in Numbers chapter 10, when the Israelites were in the wilderness and they were setting out for the Holy Land, Moses talked to his brother-in-laws and said, Hey, would you guys come along with us? Come on. And you can be guides. You know this land well. You can go along with us and help us as we journey. And they did. And... They stayed with the Jews after they settled in the land. Many of the Rechabites, like Jonadab, had chosen to follow God. Matter of fact, we find back in 2 Kings and in chapter 10 of 2 Kings, Jonadab is involved with in the northern kingdom of Israel with the king there in a move to try to rid the land of Baal worship. 
Jonadab was a man who was zealous for God. Even though the king really wasn't and the people weren't, Jonadab was. He was more, he was more godly and more, and more faithful in following God than the Jews were. And it's this Jonadab, this same one called Jehonadab, the longer version of the name, in, in 2 Kings 10, who tells his descendants, don't drink wine, don't build houses, live in tents, don't sow crops, you can live in tents and be herdsmen all the days of your lives forever. And what's remarkable is that his kids obeyed. They have only come, they say, we've only come into Jerusalem because Nebuchadnezzar's army, the Babylonians, are out there. And we didn't think it was safe, so we came here hoping to find safety. And as soon as the gates are open and it's safe out there, we're leaving. That's what they say. This was all about obedience to dear old dad. Actually, great, 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 great granddad. You see, this has been going on for over 250 years. Let that sink in a minute, moms and dads. We're happy when our kids listen at all. And we're really ecstatic when they remember what we said and obey for a few days, right? This has been going on for over 250 years. It's like going back to, you know, 1771. That's 250 years ago. And in 1771, four years before the Declaration of Independence, Milton Baines Spa stands up and says, All you, my family, from now on, you all should live in tents. Never build houses. Never plant crops. Live as nomads. Herd sheep. And never drink wine ever. Or any alcohol. Never. That's it. Forever. That's our family rule. You go, wow, it's pretty weird. And now, 2021, you're driving across Missouri and you see a bunch of folks over here living in tents and their spas. And you drive down the road a little ways and here's a bunch more folks living in tents, their spas. You make your way down to Texas and you find more spas down there and they're living in tents, herding sheep, drinking no wine. (laughs) That would be insane. Or you may have other words, you know, incredible. That, that's what, wow. (laughs) Have you ever heard of such a thing? No, me either. This is remarkable faithfulness. It would be today, and it was then. So, all right, well, that's an interesting story, Jeremiah. What's the point? And God, that's an interesting story, but why is it even here in the Bible? Why do we need to know this little story? Why did you have Jeremiah go through this whole thing? Why to go out and find the Rechabites, bring them in, bring them in the temple, rent a room, get them there, bring the officials in, put the, put the, the wine out, go through this charade when God, you knew they were going to say no anyway. Why'd you do this? Three lessons I think God wants us to learn here from this as we keep going. Pick it up in verse 12. 
Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and say to the people of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction and listen to my word, declares the Lord? The command that Jonadab, the son of Rechab, gave to all his sons to drink no wine has been kept. And they drink none to this day, for they have obeyed their father's command. And I have spoken to you persistently, but you have not listened to me. I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, sending them persistently, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way, and amend your deeds, and do not go after other gods to serve them. And then you shall dwell in the land that I gave you and your fathers. But you did not incline your ear or listen to me. The sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have kept the command that their father gave them. But this people has not obeyed me. God calls Jeremiah to go now and address all the people of the land, all the people of Jerusalem. He says, give them this message. There's three lessons here. The first lesson is that God rightly expects obedience from His people. God is angry at His children's disobedience. The people of Israel, the people of Judah, they have not listened to God. They have disobeyed Him. But here, these outsiders, they're not even Jews, they're outsiders who live among us. These folks have faithfully followed their father's commands for over 250 years. If children listen to and obey and honor their earthly fathers, God is saying, how much more should my people, my children, honor and listen to me, their heavenly Father? God is right. He has every right to expect His chosen people to listen to Him, to follow Him. Those He rescued out of Egypt and gave them this land to live in and be His people. But there is no history of the people of, of Israel, of the Jews, faithfully following God like these Rechabites followed their ancestor, Jonadab. And so God asked him in verse 13, He says, Will you not receive instruction and listen to my words? God says, Won't you listen? There's a huge difference between knowing what God says and receiving what God says, receiving His Word. To know what God says is simply to listen and intellectually process it and say, God says this. And the Jews had done that. They heard His Word, but they didn't receive it. To receive it is to, is to believe Him, to trust God, to value and to obey His Word, to take it not just intellectually, but to put it into practice, to translate it into real life. And they didn't do that. See, the Israelites didn't outright reject God. The Israelites didn't say, we aren't God's people anymore. We don't want God. We, we hereby reject God. You are out of our life. The, the Jews still considered themselves God's people. They still call themselves the people of God. 
As we noted last week, God said, you never hesitate at all to come when you're really in trouble. Come say, help God, help us, help us. They still claimed him. They called themselves God's people, but they also followed after other gods and worshipped other gods. They still went to the temple and they worshipped and offered sacrifices to God. But in the rest of life, in the dailies of life, in the real life, you know, they followed their own desires rather than God's. Generally, they ignored God's commands. As I thought about that, I thought they are so like us, or actually we're so like them. How many Christians live their lives just like that? Call themselves believers, followers of Jesus Christ. We've got the t-shirts, we've got the bumper stickers. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, but we follow after other gods. What we really value and really chase after are the other gods like wealth or stuff or pleasure or popularity, friendship. We chase after other gods rather than chasing God Himself. We come to church and we worship and we sing the songs and we have a nice smile on our face and yet... When we leave here and we go into the dailies, into real life, if we could follow you around and look into your mind, how often is, do you have any concern for God, for obedience to Him? So many believers do not. So many Christians live their lives, as what I often call, in practical atheism. They profess Christ, but in practice, they live like an atheist. Albeit maybe a good atheist, a nice person, a moral person. But if there is no relationship with God, no, no communication with God, no thought with God, no, no desire for His desires in our life, do we not often live like an atheist? That is how these people lived Sad to say, I think it is how we do. But God expected His people to listen to Him, to, to follow Him, to obey Him. And He still expects that of His people today. Jesus said, John chapter 15, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. The Apostle John writes in his first letter, he says, And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. The person that says, I have a relationship with God, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, I know God, and doesn't live in obedience to God is a liar. That's what he says. God has always expected that his people will follow him and obey him. God rightly expects obedience from his children. Should He not, He who has made us His children, not only by creating us physically, but He paid for us, bought our salvation at the cost of His own Son, the blood of Christ. We have owned Him as our Father when we trusted in Jesus as our Savior. And we pray to Him, Father, should He not expect our devotion, our honor, our obedience. 
Second quick lesson is that disobedience has a cost. It's costly. Look at verse 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the disasters that I have pronounced against them because I have spoken to them and they have not listened. I have called to them and they have not answered. For decades, decades, God has been warning the people of Judah, I will bring disaster upon you. Actually, for longer than that, the nation of the northern kingdom of Israel fell a century before and God said to them, look at what happened there. The same is coming to you. If you will not turn from your evil ways, repent and follow me, I will bring such judgment upon you. They wouldn't listen. They didn't listen. They refused to listen. And now God is saying the message here is the judgment is coming. You will notice if you read this story, there is no... By the way, if you repent now, I won't bring this on you. It, was, it will be weeks or at the most a few months from now that Nebuchadnezzar will turn away from Egypt and on his way back home, his armies will capture Jerusalem and take the best and the brightest of the Israelites as captives back to Babylon. God's judgment upon this nation will begin very shortly after this story because they refused to turn from their disobedience. As Christians, there are warnings as well for us in Scripture that we must not live in sin and rebellion against our Heavenly Father. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are a child of God, the Bible tells us. Your future in heaven is secure. Your sins are forgiven. But, as Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says, the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastens every son whom He receives. If you are a child of God, don't ever think that you've got a free pass to do whatever you want. God says, if you're my child, I'm a good father. And a good father will not let his child run off and live in disobedience doing whatever they want because the father loves the child too much. Right, dads? As good fathers, we discipline our children. Not because we hate them, not because we're mean, but we do it for their good. We love them too much. A child of God will be disciplined. There's a cost to living in rebellion, to living in sin. By the way, if, if you claim to be a believer in Jesus Christ and you deliberately live in sin and rebellion against God and there is no hand of discipline coming upon you, that's even a bigger concern because you just may not be a child of God at all. You may have deceived yourself. Yeah, back somewhere somewhere in time, I prayed a prayer, walked down an aisle, whatever. But if you're not under the discipline of God, as living in rebellion and sin, it's kind of like, you know, as moms and dads, we discipline our kids, but we often don't discipline the neighbor's kids, Pastor Larry used to say, you know, and he's right. And God disciplines every child that comes to him. He disciplines the one he loves, but he often will let the neighbor's kids alone. 
That's the point. Disobedience is costly. That's a lesson here. There's another important lesson here. Find it in verses 18 to 19. That's that faithfulness brings reward. It's interesting to try to figure out why in the world would this family of Rechabites be obeying great, 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 great grandpa's unreasonable command. I mean, let's face it, wives, if you married a Rechabite, and he says, honey, we live in tents, by the way, it's family rule. Because back in, you know, 1771, Uncle Milton, great-grandpa Milton said, this is what we do. How many of you think that's a good reason? (laughs) I don't think so. We're building a house, buddy. (laughs) And we're not... We're not living as nomads. We're settling down. You know. Why have they been so faithful? There's an interesting clue back in verse 7. Look at the second half of the verse. Jehonadab has given his instructions and he says, You do these things, look at the end of verse 7, that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. Does that sound familiar? How about Exodus chapter 20, Ten Commandments. There's this little command that's appropriate on Father's Day. It says, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, I may be reading too much into Scripture because it doesn't say exactly here. But I have a feeling, based on what's here, that what go, has gone through the mind of the Rechabites, Jonadab was a godly man who loved the Lord and was zealous to follow God. And Jonadab gives this command and he says, Do this that the Lord may bless you. And everybody has done this exactly claiming this promise. Honor your father and mother that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. We're going to take God at His Word. He says, if we obey Daddy, God will bless us. And you know what God does? Look at verse 18. But to the house of the Rechabites, Jeremiah said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Because you have kept the command of Jonadab your father and kept all his precepts and done all that he commanded you, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall never lack a man to stand before me. By the way, Rechabites, you came here to Jerusalem to find safety because Nebuchadnezzar is out there with his armies in the land. By the way, very soon they're going to come against Jerusalem. And later on, there's going to be two more invasions that happen later on and eventually the whole land is going to be wiped out doesn't say all that here, but that's just coming down the road. But God says, you guys have obeyed your father. And I made a promise with the command back there, honor your father and mother. And I'm honoring that promise right now. He says, the Rechabites will never, ever lack a man to stand before me. In other words, your line will never be wiped out. 
I don't know if you go to Israel today, if you could walk around and find some people who say, yep, I'm a Rechabite. They got the T-shirt. <laughs> you know, I'm a Rechabite. We're still here. <laughs> I don't know if there are people who can claim that lineage, but you know what? They're there. They may not know who they are, but God does. Because God never fails to keep a promise. And God made a promise here. And He did it because these people were faithful to believe God. And in believing God, they honored their dad. What a marvelous example. And what a marvelous challenge it is too. And by the way, a marvelous promise that God will reward those who, who obey Him. That promise is throughout Scripture. I could give us many. I'm just going to end with one. Here's one. It says, let us not grow weary in doing good. Let us not grow weary in obeying God, in doing what's right. For in due season we will reap, we'll reap a harvest if we do not give up. Let's pray. Father, the reality is every one of us struggles at times with giving up. We struggle with obeying You. We struggle with following You. We get our eyes and, and our minds and our hearts on other things. Every one of us at times has fallen into the pattern of the Israelites here, following other gods, following other things, ignoring and disobeying You. God, in Your grace, at times You bring discipline into our lives to try to get our attention and move us back onto what is right into what is beneficial for us. Father, if any of us are here this morning, we've been running from You. Anyone watching at home, been running from You, disobeying You, may they even in this moment say, Father, I'm sorry. May they repent and turn from their wrong ways. You have a right to expect obedience from us. Father, if we've been under your hand of discipline, may we even now just say, I'm, I give, I give, Lord, I'm coming back. May we respond like good children. Father, may none of us give up as we just read. May we not give up, but may instead we, may we be committed, dedicated to following you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength because there is great blessing, there is great joy, there are wonderful things that come when we live as obedient children and honor you, our Father. Father, I pray that this Father's Day, that this room, even right now, is filled with people that are those who are watching at home, those who are watching on vacation or somewhere else, that that wherever we are this morning, that we would be people who come to You as loving, grateful, devoted children. And we follow You all the days of our life. Following in the example set here by these weird folks so many centuries ago. Thank You for the Rechabites, for their example to us. May we do likewise. In Jesus' name.